Hello, and welcome to Linux Action News, episode 111, recorded on June 23rd, 2019. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. We start out this week with a story that is getting a lot of discussion online, and that is Ubuntu's plan to drop i386 support in 1910. Yeah, this has been a long time coming. They've been discussing this for well over a year, and now is the time to do it before the LTS. It's going to be dropped in 1910 in preparation for the first LTS 2004 that will just have no i386 support at all. Yeah, the uh, post on the Canonical Discourse site reads, the Ubuntu engineering team has reviewed the facts before us and concluded that we should not continue to carry the i386 architecture forward. Consequently, i386 will not be included as an architecture for 1910 release and will shortly begin the process of disabling it for the series across the Ubuntu infrastructure. And they go on, and this is the part that really caught a lot of attention. While this means we will not provide 32-bit builds of new upstream versions of libraries, there are a number of ways that 32-bit applications can continue to be made available to users in later Ubuntu releases. Well, virtualization being the obvious one, and potentially flat pack and snaps. Even a cheroot of the 1804 libraries, because 1804, it has many years of support ahead of it. Yeah, another four years, which should be enough time, hopefully, to migrate away from the various applications that are still using 32-bit components. I mean, this is a thing that's happening. We've been talking about it for a year on this show. Open Mandriva also announced this week their plans to drop the 32-bit release in sort of a transitionary method. What are your thoughts on this, Joe? I mean, it kind of feels like this is the future in a way. This story made me realize... I'm an old man, by the way, because I have been here for the transition from 8-bit to 16-bit to 32-bit, and now I'm watching the 64-bit transition. And this one seems like the sloppiest of all. It does seem to be a very painful transition, definitely. It's been dragged out for many years at this point. I think the way that Canonical have done this with Ubuntu has made a lot of sense. They first of all dropped the ISO images, and they stopped automatically upgrading people to 1904 in preparation, really, for an inevitable eventuality. And that is that they can't just keep building that 32-bit i386 repo because of all the QA, testing, security issues that come with it. Well, and think about it from the canonical developer's position. Once you make an announcement like this, you still have to wait for all of the production-supported systems to work their way out. So if you think about it, that would be 1404, 1604, and obviously 1804, all have years of support left. So they will have to continue to maintain these libraries even after this announcement and this release is final. <laughs> so it's it's long-term planning. Yeah, you might have to pay to get some of those, like 1404, but yeah, that will be supported potentially for another few years still. So it, this is extremely long-term planning from them. And it, they have to draw a line at some point, don't they? It does seem inevitable as the steady progress of time marches on. And I, I would not be surprised if other distributions start having the same conversation in the next year or so. It may be the number one conversation over the next year. And oftentimes, Canonical and Ubuntu are kind of at the forefront of these kinds of decisions. I think of Mir and Upstart. They weren't really popular decisions. But let's be frank, when they decided to choose Mir development on Wayland was going nowhere. It wasn't until they committed to Mir that Wayland picked up. And the, to be honest with you, Joe, the same is really true for Snaps. 
flat packs, weren't even called flat packs then, XGG apps, I think is what they were called, and they were going nowhere until snaps were announced. I kind of think the reality is the same here for this transition from i386 support. Well, it took a few days, but the community did react to this, and it turns out that there are quite a few, not even that niche cases, that still need some 32-bit libraries and components to work properly, specifically Steam and Wine. Yeah, you're right, Joe. 32-bit is alive and well in the gaming world. In fact, friend of the show Popey, Canonical employee, did a little testing of his own, and the results were pretty much miss, not so much hit. A lot of things depend on those 32-bit libraries. And I'm not, I'm not telling anybody anything they don't know that's ever attempted to get kind of any sort of gaming setup on Linux. You really have to get all of those libraries installed for it to work properly. But does that mean it should always be that way? Well, hopefully not. Hopefully this is going to be the impetus to push forward development and move into the 21st century and stop using i386. And we do have to stress that this is 32-bit x86 we're talking about. It's nothing to do with ARM 32-bit, which is still going strong and probably will be for a while. Yeah, you're right. (laughs) It's kind of funny we have to make that disclosure now. ARM 32-bit's fine, guys. It's fine. It's fine. But really, um, I'm a little disappointed because there has been a significant backlash to this announcement. It really kind of kicked off when that Valve developer tweeted that they're dropping support for Ubuntu going forward. And then from there, you had a change.org petition that people started signing. Yeah. (laughs) I know. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, I don't even think it's broke 200 people yet. But it it really, it started to stoke the internet outrage machine. And I'm a little disappointed because you can see different Canonical employees immediately beginning to backtrack now. And now Canonical is repositioning this as a, a as like a firm thing we're doing. And now it's a, hey, it's a proposal. And it's not out yet. And we may change things. <laughs> Guys, calm down. Yeah, it's funny. It was a decision that had been made. And then now they're talking about it as a proposal. And that is... Um, well, you could say it's them listening to feedback or dealing with the backlash, but this whole backlash has happened at the weekend. So we'll have to see in this coming week how this is dealt with and, and whether they do officially backtrack on it or whether they double down and say, look, if it means you moving off to another distro, so be it. This is what we're doing. We've made the decision and we're going to stick with it. Yeah, the timeline is not great here. So uh, the the announcement is made on Tuesday and the language is strong. You know, we're doing this thing. This is how it's going to be. And that happens on Tuesday. The internet doesn't care. Nothing happens apparently. But then on Friday, a Valve developer tweets that they're dropping support and the internet outrage machine goes into overdrive while all of the canonical employees are, you know, having themselves a weekend. <laughs> it's it's worst case scenario in a, in a PR event here. Well, I really do hope they don't backtrack on this. It's been difficult for the canonical employees, basically on their free time trying to deal with this. But presumably on Monday morning, when they actually get together and discuss this, there will be a a decision made and maybe some sort of public statement about it. And I really hope that they do just double down it and say, look, we are pushing forward for once. We're not going to just cave into this outrage culture. That would be great. I don't think that's what's going to happen. They're going to come up with some sort of solution that involves just moving the 1804 maintained libraries forward to 1910. And yay, that's great. I think at the end of the day, I'm pretty disappointed. I think watching this entire discussion happen has made me realize that 
Canonical and Linux project development in general, open source project development really, in general, is really subjective to outrage development. You start down a path, the internet freaks out, and you turn to something that's less objectionable by the outraged Twitter groups. And we all kind of suffer in the long term. We don't make the dramatic progress that we really need. We make a compromised progress. And the rest of the end users, the silent majority, suffer. We don't get the real change we need. We get some sort of compromised end product that satisfies the people that are upset over the weekend. But isn't that kind of the point of open source development? Whereas if you take something like macOS, drop in 32-bit support, that will have happened internally, the discussion. Whereas because this is open source, the discussion happens externally out in public. And isn't that a good thing? That's complicated. I think what you need is you need the public discussion because there has been a lot of good points made online, on Twitter and and various different uh, outlets that are worth considering that Canonical should reflect on. At the same time, you have to have people that are really committed to a vision that won't just cave to the outrage, that are willing to see the big picture through. You got you to gotta have a balance there. You do have to have a balance, and it's probably better for people to have the discussion in the correct place, and just ranting on Twitter probably isn't the correct place for that. Having a calm discussion on the proper mailing list or on their discourse forum or whatever, that would seem to me to be the correct place to do it. I would love to see a rational, technological discussion around this. Like, Imagine if all of that energy had gone into coming up with a solution around this, because every single distribution is about to face this problem. So what if we came up with a way to solve this? Maybe it's just the Steam runtime gets more libraries, or maybe we double down on a flat pack or snap solution. But what if, as a community, we took this opportunity to come up with a cross-distribution solution to this problem. Solus has tried it. There's a flat pack that tries this. There's a snap that tries to solve this problem. Everybody has a solution to this. What if, just for a moment, we took all of this upset and outrage at Canonical and we said, you know what? They're trying to solve a problem we all face. How can we solve this? That would be such an appropriate focus and use of everyone's energy. Instead, we get silly things like change.org petitions, and we get silly outrage on Twitter, and we get silly hot takes here and there. We, people don't even give it three days to settle and marinate. Well, they have to get their outrage out in time to build another video editor, right? <laughs> yeah, let's launch a crowdfunder too, Joe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a petition to make another great video editor for Linux. That's what we need. <laughs> That'll solve it. Well, in the meantime, the rest of the press is all writing about these outrageous security vulnerabilities that affect both Linux and FreeBSD. Yeah, this is something called Sack Panic, which has been dubbed the new ping of death. What's really happening here is the way the OS handles these SACs. Uh, a SAC is a TCP selective acknowledgement, and there's various different ways the kernel can respond to these. And in this particular and the other vulnerability that's happening here, CVE 2019-11478, the operating system does not handle that kind of traffic very well, both in the case of FreeBSD and Linux, and what essentially happens is the operating system becomes completely consumed handling these types of TCP packets and can't respond to other services like, you know, a web request. (laughs) 
And this is not exactly a new issue, is it? No, that might even be the part that really kind of makes this a story. This flaw goes as far back, at least as far as Linux is concerned. It goes back to kernel 2.6.29. So <laughs> that's uh, a lot of kernels, Joe. Yeah, and never before has Alan Jude's advice of patch your system. I think that's what your he stuff, used to say. Your stuff, your stuff. Oh, your stuff, that's it, yeah. Never before has that advice been so relevant the patches are there, but you have to apply them. And if you're not using a live kernel patch, then it means a reboot. But I think some of these kernel flaws, you know, take it or leave it. It's not really that important to reboot immediately. But with this one, I was just on it, rebooting everything immediately. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in total, we're really talking three different flaws that could be found in the Linux kernel's handling of TCP networking. That, to me, definitely registers as a worth it. And the most severe vulnerability could allow a remote attacker to trigger a kernel panic. And nobody wants their system to go down. So it's worth updating on this one. Well, this was the week that Slack did a very successful IPO. But I noticed that Mattermost, which is the kind of open source alternative to Slack, raised quite a lot of VC funding. This is the story that did not get very much reporting in the wake of Slack's big IPO, but Mattermost raised $50 million. And that's not all, really. This is their latest round of funding. It brings their total raised money to $70 million to build a Slack competitor. Now, I'd been aware of Mattermost for quite a long time, but I'd never actually tried it out. But this inspired me to spin it up on a, a DigitalOcean droplet, and I must say I was very impressed with it. It seems very much like Slack, but missing a few of the features, but I suppose you could say it's focused on the features that you need rather than some of the bloat that Slack might have. And I could seriously see myself and a team using it, self-hosted, open source. I mean, there are Obviously, the uh, enterprise versions that have some added features, mostly around compliance and stuff. But I could definitely see running this self-hosted version, certainly with a smallish team. Yeah, you and me and a few others gave it a go this weekend uh, for this story so that we could have some experience with Mattermost. And I think we all walked away fairly impressed. Um, if you're a Slack-free user today... I really don't think there's any reason you couldn't switch over to Mattermost immediately. Now, if you're not familiar, it's a startup that characterizes itself as an open source messaging alternative to not just Slack, but also, you know, Microsoft Teams or Atlassian HipChat, those kinds of enterprise chat softwares. And along with the announcement of the money, there's also some changes in the Mattermost board. Uh, most significantly, the Twitter COO will join the Mattermost board as a director. And there's also some good news that comes along with the fundraising. The project has grown to 10,000 independent downloads a month and 1,000 unique contributors to the project. Much, much of that in translation, admittedly. But it's, it's, it's kind of nice to see the project grow. We tried it out, and we both walked away with, huh, you know what? Better than I expected. I thought you'd have to like set up a matrix system and get a riot IM on top of that and really build something out to get something competitive with Slack. But with Mattermost, you stand it up in a... A few minutes, I assume, and you're good to go. I'm, I'm kind of curious, Joe, how long did it take you to get a Mattermost instance running? Well, the documentation was really good. And yeah, it only took a few minutes to get the initial system up. And then only a few more minutes, really, to get the Nginx proxy going. And I got my Let's Encrypt sorted out. And so, yeah, total, probably less than an hour of, of working on it. But now I've done it once. I think I could spin it up on another instance much more quickly. 
Well, their CEO says that this is going to accelerate their growth and their community. They plan to go from 65 employees to 110 employees by 2020. They're going to like go at Slack, like full on, full force now. And having seen it, I've not only tried it out with uh, your instance, but also the Pop! OS community is using Mattermost. I honestly think it's, it's better than Slack free. And if we were starting today, I would just use this. And if I was an open source project creating a distribution or a project that was being consumed by open source enthusiasts, the matter most would just be 100% the way I go. I mean, IRC rooms are great, absolutely. I'd probably have one of those too, but I wouldn't do a form anymore. I wouldn't do a free Slack. I would just stand up a Mattermost instance, and I think it would be really successful. They also have apps for Windows, Linux, the Mac, Android, iOS, as well as a web application. Yeah, I tried out the Android app, and it was pretty much on a par with Slack. The only issue I had was that the notifications don't actually tell you what the message is. It just tells you that, you know, Chris has sent a message or whatever. So then you have to open the app. and <laughs> That's how I like it. Like a bit of mystery. Yeah, read my message. It's a mystery. Yeah, I tried out the Linux desktop app. It's, you know, it's a, it's a wrapper around the web application. But you get, you know, system trays and you get notifications and you can have multiple instances. So it's, it's not bad, uh, but it's a web app. It's a web app in a desktop application, but, you know, they're making a Linux version available, and it does integrate, so I can't complain. Yeah, it's definitely one to watch, but it seems that something that we won't be watching is any more Google tablets. As a longtime Android on tablets enthusiast, which I thought it did better at, I got the Samsung Tab, I obviously got the Nexus 7, I thought it was great. I'm a little sad to see this news, but if Google's going to focus on a singular OS, especially one around the laptop form factor... Chrome OS is definitely the OS to just focus on. I I really, really wanted a Pixel Slate, but the reviews were so bad. It seemed so, so early. It seemed like a product that lacked focus from its developers, from, from the makers. Uh, I, I, I hate to see this. At the same time, they need to pick a horse, and they just need to try to win a race. The iPad Pro is so far ahead right now. Well, that's the elephant in the room here, isn't it? That the iPad Pro is very expensive, but it is the the class leader in that space. You could argue that maybe the Surface devices that Microsoft have got are competing there. That's kind of mostly an enterprise and stuff. But uh, I kind of disagree there, Joe. With this change, I feel like Google is going more head-to-head with the Surface. Well, yeah, I suppose. And they're basically just leaving that tablet market to Apple now and just accepting defeat there, really. Because initially they dropped Android on their own tablets and tried to go for Chrome OS, but it just it doesn't make sense on that form factor. Whereas the the Pixel Book form factor, which is essentially a convertible laptop that you can fold all the way around into a tablet, kind of splits the difference, gives you the best of both worlds. But without the the keyboard attachment, that Pixel Slate just didn't make any sense at all. And because that keyboard wasn't really good enough, that's probably why it didn't take off. So I'm not hugely surprised by this, really. But um, it's just a bit sad that there will be OEMs like Samsung and stuff making tablets still. Yeah, they'll keep going. They could go with the open source version of Android. Well, yeah. And, you know, Android, you can just run kind of phone Android on a slightly bigger screen, but it just doesn't have that traction, the app ecosystem that Apple has. That's the thing. You need those applications. You got to have the app developers on board. 
Yeah. Well, unless like me, I recently bought a Galaxy Tab S2, I think it's called, and put Lineage on it. And But that's only a small, I think an 8-inch, 4 by 3 aspect ratio one, and that I use for reading news and stuff. That's a great size. I love the 7-inch. My Nexus 7 is my favorite tablet. I have an iPad Pro now. It's a great... It's a great tablet. It's so fast. But my favorite tablet was the Nexus 7. I could put it in my coat pocket. Yeah, I can do that somewhat with this um, Galaxy Tab S2. But really, I just have it set up very much like my phone. It's just a a bigger, easier to read phone, really. I think when you're getting into the 10-inch plus, that's when you really need to have a UI that's based around it. And that's why we're going to see iPad OS shortly, which is really just iOS with a few extra features. And you need to have the apps that can take advantage of that bigger form factor. And I think that Android is just lost in this space, unfortunately, and Chrome OS never really got started. So, yeah, it's kind of sad. I kind of agree. I think at least immediately that's true. Long term, Google is making a lot of wins with the Google Apps integration with companies, and uh, I think that sells Chromebooks right there. I think they have a good long-term strategy. And if they can get behind one product like this, which has often been a criticism of Google, they could be really successful. I'd love to see them bring something that's Linux-based as a competition to the iPad. Because right now, I'm using the iPad Pro because it's the best product. But if I could buy a Google Linux-based device that would be better, hmm, I may consider it. Then it would really come down to the privacy stuff. Yeah. You know, that little detail that nobody has to worry about with LibraCoin, that uh, rumor we talked about last week, Joe, turns out it's a real thing. Yeah, it turns out those rumors were completely true, and it was officially announced this week. And we've got a link in the show notes to a Verge article that then has a bunch of links to way more articles if you really want to get in depth with this. But I think because those rumors were pretty much spot on, we didn't learn a huge amount. Yeah. I agree. What we kind of learned, if anything, was the rollout plan. At launch, you'll be able to send Libra inside of Facebook Messenger and WhatsApp. Surprise, surprise. And then, for the most part, it'll be initially used as a way to take Facebook money and convert it to real money. But eventually, like the long-term plan that Facebook has, is they hope that Libra will be accepted as a form of payment and maybe other financial services that they can build on top of some sort of service They have, quote, plans long-term for it to transform the global economy, end quote. (laughs) (laughs) Well, global is the key issue here. This is not aimed at us in Europe and America. This is aimed at developing nations where people are using these phone-based payment systems, and it's really looking to compete with those. I agree. I completely agree. That's where the story is really going to get interesting long-term. Anyone who has followed the cryptocurrencies and blockchain for a while now has been just kind of sitting back and waiting for some large corporation to take advantage of what is essentially a gift of the riches. Like, if you can really pull this off, you make your own currency, and you make it math-based, and you, you follow the right kind of protocols and procedures, you can have a hit. And I think any of us cryptocurrency enthusiasts, yay, Bitcoin, have been just kind of waiting. <laughs> like, who's going to figure this out? I thought it would be Microsoft, but apparently it's Facebook. Yeah, so it would seem. And uh, our speculation last week about the price of Bitcoin going up seems to have been correct, because it has. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's been somewhat volatile, shall we say, but it has gone up. So, <laughs> yeah. Good news. It wouldn't be a Bitcoin story without a little bit of volatility in there, would it? <laughs> yeah. Even though this Libra is, people are saying, oh, it's not even a proper cryptocurrency. It's basically just a fiat currency. And there's been a lot of naysayers. But I think that it potentially has some legs. I don't know. I still don't know where I stand, whether it's the death battle of a dying company, you know, a very slowly dying company, or whether it's going to really take off and make them a bunch of money in developing nations. I think really we have to wait until it's launched next year. Absolutely. I just, I'm sitting here with a huge smile on my face right now because I just, I love all of the parallels to free software and open source that are happening in the financial sector. It's, it's amazing. It feels like it is it's 1979 for the financial institutions right now, and they are about to witness a reckoning when an open source way of doing currency comes, and it's math-backed at that. I just, I really enjoy this, and it's, it's, there's so many parallels for somebody who has been watching the free software and open source communities for years when it comes to cryptocurrency, and um, it is one of the grandest experiments that's going to happen on the human stage when it comes to software and everyday life, I can't wait to see where this goes because we have a a very special position in history to watch this thing unfold. Who's going to be the richest storeman of it, though? That's the big question. Hey, at the end of the day, Joe, we're all Satoshi Nakamoto. Yeah. <laughs> well, wherever it goes, we'll follow it, as we always do here on Linux Action News. Be sure you go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes. And go to linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch with us. And why don't you come work with us? Come hang with Joe and I over at Linux Academy. They have lots of open positions right now, from training architects across the board to general engineering, like development on Ruby on Rails, QA engineering, Node.js and Angular development, all of it is open right now. They're growing, and they want people like you that are listening to these podcasts to apply. So go to linuxacademy.com slash careers, or go to the link in the show notes. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I am at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Ressington. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next week. See you later.